When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, friends. It's Vin Scully. It's time for Dr. Clapper. In sports, there's winning and losing and getting injured. That's why there's Dr. Clapper. Dr. Clapper is the former head of orthopedic surgery at Cedar sinai The Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper, presented by Cedar sinai Hey, Dr. Clapper. How are you? Saturday mornings from 7 to 9. Silence is golden when you can't think of a good answer. <laughs> yes, Doc, I love your show. Now, here he is, Dr. Robert Clapper. Good morning, and welcome back to the Weekend Warrior Show. Here here on 710 ESPN. What a great night last night with the Mandy Awards. And guess what? This show, Weekend Warrior, won the Lifetime Achievement Award. It was awesome. The station, its first ever award ceremony, the Mandy Awards. And we were there. I was there. If you go on Twitter, you'll see my punum, which is Yiddish for my cheeks. So happy with my Mandy Award. But I'm really happy to join you each and every Saturday to talk about life and how the world of art and sports and my life of surgery intertwine. And at 8.15, my guest is a good friend, someone I really respect, who's a great surgeon, a different kind of surgery than I do. His specialty is hernias. A hernia where your gut pooches out where it's not supposed to be in your groin or in the case of sports a sports hernia where you tear one of those important core muscles that six-pack muscle called the rectus abdominis oh is it painful soccer players football players hard thing to diagnose but awesome to be able to fix Get rid of the pain in an athlete or a weekend warrior. We're going to learn all about it at 8.15. But those structures, those muscles that live between your ribcage and your pelvis, that keep your guts in place, your belly, is not a single muscle. It's a blend, a tapestry of different muscles going in different directions. Vertical, rectus abdominis. Oblique, those are the external oblique and uh, internal oblique muscles. They're diagonal. And then there's a horizontal muscle, the transverse abdominus muscle. It's awesome when layering occurs in life. It gives strength. It gives power. And it made me think all week, where do you see that power in layering in art? in sports as well. And that's when I thought about this song. I, I love the colorful clothes you wear. In 1966, the the this song came out and changed the world forever. Brian Wilson, 
strange produced and sang that song. He made you feel with those words and that melody and that harmony that you were at the beach. Southern California was the place to be for everyone all over the world. Listen to that song and try not to feel the sunshine, the blue sky, and the ocean. But the secret was Brian Wilson could visualize in his mind and hear the blending and layering of different sounds, good vibrations. He recorded in four different studios, backup vocals here, instruments here, singing here. 90 hours, four studios, three months of layering to change the world of music. One of the studios he used, used the musicians called the Wrecking Crew. Glenn Campbell, one of the greatest guitar players of all time. Hal Blaine on the drums and the greatest bass guitar player of all time, the great Carol Kay. Listen to them talk about layering. Just like hernia surgery, layering of your abdominal muscles in the world of art. Good vibrations. Yeah, right. We must have did 25, 30 it sessions. It might take yeah. six months. Too. Some days that we worked five minutes, some days we worked four hours. Yeah. On the same song. We just we experimented and they would ask me, well, what do you want? And I'd say, well, I don't know, you know. And we'd go home and the next time we get together, then we would fall together and we'd do the thing. Three months, two, three dates a week, but Capitol Records was picking up the tab. And we like to work for him. The word was, do you have a date with Brian Wilson tomorrow? I said, yeah, I do. Oh, good. Listen to Brian Wilson talk about Carol Kay. Well, Carol played on Good Vibrations and California Girls, and she was like the star of the show. I mean, she was the greatest bass player in the world. And she was way ahead of her time. She would play a tonic and a fifth or a third instead of a fifth. You know, she was one of the first bass players to start playing that way. But he definitely wrote out some neat lines on the bass, like, for instance... I'd have never played that. Mm. I'll just go into this. Mm. Now, that, that's a jazz walking line. You knew that this kid was into something really, really ah, good. This kid, this 23-year-old, dreamed this up in his head. The room had a spirit to it, with Hal being the, the leader, you know. And all the guys working together and thumping and pumping. He would get things like he wanted to hear them. And when he got them that way, it was good. When I heard Good Vibrations the first time on the radio, I just, it just blew me away. And while this boy genius, Brian Wilson, is discovering how to layer a song and put it together, guess who's listening? The Beatles. Thousands of miles away in England, they're paying attention to this boy genius and the Beach Boys. And the fifth Beatle, their producer, their arranger, is none other 
than George Martin. And George Martin's favorite song is this one, God Only Knows. I may not always love you, but long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God only knows what I'd be without you. The layering is what fascinates George Martin. So he gets on a plane all these years later and flies to Southern California to meet Brian Wilson to sit down and take apart the layers. Just like Dr. Joshi takes apart the different layers that makes up your core muscles, the power in what keeps our gut where it's supposed to be, that's what's happening in art. I love the term that George Martin uses as a tapestry. Because that's how you make a tapestry. Layers of needles and sewing and using the fibers to build a rug. That's what Brian Wilson does with your ears when you listen to that song. But listen to George Martin sitting next to Brian Wilson decades later taking the song apart. God Only Knows has always been one of my favorite Beach Boy songs. I'll make you so sure about it And God only knows what I'd be without you I wanted to strip it down and look at its components. This is always the best way to hear the raw material of the melody. Phrase on the French horn later on the backing vocal. Yeah. And now we have... So we got out the original master tapes. Mm. I may not always love you, but long as there are stars above Which was overdubbed, wasn't it? Yes. So let's take away the backing. Just call off. I'll make you so sure. Two tracks. One track. God only knows what I'd be without you. The other wow. Together? What Brian had done was to write a beautiful song full of unusual changes and then devise a tapestry of sounds to enhance it. A tapestry of sounds. That's exactly right, George Martin of the Beatles. For me, it was fascinating being a musical detective, looking at the song structure, back in the sort of studio in which I'd spent most of my working life. We've got the backing voices here. that term he used tapestry and then he talks about the song's structure layers of different dubs different voices and instruments blended together boy well, the way um, but you see this is what amazes me you you must have had a kind of blueprint in your mind before you went in the studio what you were what you were going to arrange arrangement wise but not sound wise right I, I didn't i couldn't think in my head before I got to see what it would sound like until I got there. No, sure. That, that would come with, with the studio work. But yeah. you, you must have had the plan there of all the harmonies. There was, there, yeah, absolutely. Working yeah. It's a lovely song and a beautiful record. Go, oh, believe me, the world could 
And now the best part, where Brian Wilson, that humble genius, secure in who he is and what he can do, paying the greatest compliment to George Martin of the Beatles by saying, you know what, George, you took the same pieces, the same layers, and made a better song than me, which of course is ridiculous. But that just teaches you how special it is to pay another person a compliment. It doesn't cost you anything to be nice. But the world's a better place when you do. Listen to Brian Wilson doing it with George Martin. So what good would living be? God knows That's a better mix than I had in the master. You're making a better mix of this than I did in the master. Never. You did it. I don't know, it's something about the way you put the balance down that makes better music than George. I can't believe this is happening. And George Martin went to his grave. He's gone now. Brian Wilson, thank God, is still with us. George Martin went to his grave with one thought that Brian Wilson said, I made a better song than he did, which he knows is not true. But his life was enriched by those simple words from Brian Wilson. That's the key. Pay it forward. Coming up next, we're going to talk to a man who knows a lot about structure the tapestry of how our body is made because his expertise is as a surgeon in the body who deals with the layers that makes us so strong. The great Dr. Neil Joshi coming up next right here on the Weekend Warrior Show on 710 ESPN. Hey, it's Mace. You know, there is no better way to start your Saturday than with Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m. Saturday mornings. And don't miss Mason in Ireland back Monday at 1 on 710 ESPN. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Soon to be a major motion picture. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Without a good hip, you ain't hopping, that's for sure. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710 home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. So excited to talk to my good friend and colleague at Cedar sinai the great Dr. Neil Joshi. Neil, thanks so much for getting up early to be with us. It's a real pleasure to be here, Robbie. Thanks uh, for having me. Uh, so teach us, Neil. You're, you're hearing all these great sound bites of structure and tapestry and blending and layering in the world of music. And we'll get into the world of sports of how to make a baseball maybe later. But your world as a general surgeon dealing with the layers that make up that muscle structure between the rib cage and our pelvis that keeps our gut in place. Teach the weekend warriors what exactly is a hernia and what different varieties are there. So the best way to understand a hernia is to think of it as a defect in the abdominal wall. Uh, our abdominal wall muscles are intended to be solid and intact and basically keep our abdominal viscera, our intestines, uh, you know, contained inside the abdominal cavity. But we have areas of our abdominal wall that are prone to disruption because of how we develop embryologically. And specifically in the groin area, the reason that 27% of men will develop inguinal hernias during their lives is because 
During fetal development, the testicles start off intra-abdominally and need to descend hmm. through holes in the lower abdominal wall to end up down in the scrotum, the so-called inguinal canals. Hmm. And during fetal development, if it occurs properly, those tunnels are intended to snugly seal around the spermatic cord and the blood vessels that go down uh, on either side. But sometimes those openings can stay a little bit too big, and that's how infants can be born uh, with inguinal hernias. Now, hmm. Even if a person isn't born with a hernia later in life because of factors like aging, wear and tear, congenital predisposition, uh, a, a person can develop uh, a defect during uh, young adulthood or later on where uh, he uh, develops uh, basically a palpable or visible bulge uh, in the groin area. Uh, women can, can develop groin hernias as well. Uh, they happen in, at a much lower incidence, more like 3 or 4% lifetime incidence. Uh, and it's because there's analogous anatomy, the, the round ligament of the uterus, which courses through uh, the, uh, the lower abdominal wall, uh, can also be an area of relative weakness. Hmm. Um, but, but we have basically these areas of our abdominal wall that are, that are prone to weakness. The other one that people classically think of is the umbilicus. You know, any, any person who's ever seen an Audi uh, umbilicus basically knows mm. that, that's a, that that's a hernia. And that's, again, an area of relative weakness because during fetal development, the, the umbilical cord basically courses through the abdominal wall there to connect a developing fetus to, 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 to the mom. And, mm. and obviously, uh, after birth, that area... Uh, fuses and seals, but it's an area of, of relative weakness. Uh, the, the reason these hernias can, can be problematic is that when we have uh, abdominal viscera like intestine or even fat from inside the abdomen that protrudes through one of these defects, it can cause pain and discomfort. Mm. And, and those, are, those are the common uh, uh, symptoms that, that lead a, a patient with a hernia to see a, to see a general surgeon. Although there is tremendous variability, there are patients who have large hernias that have really minor symptoms, and there are patients who have small hernias who have debilitating symptoms. So it really is very uh, very patient-specific. Hmm. Neil, before we go further, I think you're one of the coolest people that I know at Cedars. Cedars is just a building. It's just it's the people that I get to work with which make it special, and that's why I've made it my career there for 33 years, and you're one of those people. Tell us who you are. Where did you grow up? What did your father do for a living? And when was it that Cupid shot you in the chest and said, yep, I'm going to be a surgeon one day? How did this all happen? So I, I was born in Phoenix and grew up in a suburb of Phoenix called Mesa in Arizona. <laughs> uh, my parents, my father and mother, are both uh, engineers. <laughs> and, uh, and I grew up in, in Arizona and, uh, and, and was a golfer when I was growing up. And, and that was sort of my, my favorite uh, pastime. And I'm still a very avid golfer uh, today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I basically went from there to, to college at, at Princeton in New Jersey and uh, subsequently to, uh, to Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, where I was a medical student. Uh, and that's where I, where I met my wife, who's also a physician. Mm-hmm. I really got the bug for surgery, I think, when I was uh, in, in medical school. Prior to medical school, I had this notion of what it meant to be a surgeon, uh, just just based on sort of like kind of layperson understanding of it. But but once I was at Mayo Clinic and and, and had a chance to actually scrub into the operating room uh, and see what it was all about, uh, it really sort of lived up to to, to my dreams and, and my expectations. Uh, I think the the thing that I find so appealing about surgery is that. Uh, you know, we get to basically tackle problems that are fixable, and we get to do tangible things with our hands using our skills and our judgment to actually fix problems. 
And that's what makes the job so satisfying, you know, as opposed to a lot of other areas of specialty in medicine where you're really managing chronic disease without actually curing anything. We as surgeons, uh, you know, on our best days get to actually cure conditions and solve people's problems. And, you know, to this day, many years in practice, uh, it's just so satisfying to repair a hernia or remove a malignant tumor or do something tangible with my hands that, uh, that really helps a person. Tell me a little bit about Princeton. Why did you pick Princeton, and what was your thesis that you had to write as a senior? So, so believe it or not, uh, at that point in my life, I was a, a good enough golfer that I actually gar- garnered some interest from, uh, from from different schools. And you know, I was an all-state golfer in, in Arizona uh, uh, as, my, as a senior in, in, in high school. Wow. And, and I was also a very uh, a, a very good student and, and very academically oriented. And so. Uh, when, when Princeton expressed interest, I was thrilled and, and was really, really lucky to get to go there and, and, and study. I was actually an economics major, uh, believe it or not. And, and the reason I, I majored in economics, even though I knew I was pre-med, was because I really enjoyed math and numbers and problem solving. And, uh, and, and so it, it allowed me to, to explore uh, that side of, of my academic interest while also uh, completing all my pre-medical studies. My, my senior thesis, believe it or not, was actually a healthcare economics thesis. <laughs> uh, I, I wrote it uh, on, on sort of uh, an explanation or at least a, 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 an investigation as to why managed care had taken off in some markets versus others in the United States. And, and my thesis advisor was, was a real, is, is a real brilliant person, uh, Alan Blinder, who was actually uh, vice chair of the Federal Reserve Board prior to coming back to Princeton. Um, and it was just a really extraordinary department. Uh, I, to this day, I feel so fortunate to have gotten to learn uh, from such brilliant people uh, when, I, when I was there. Uh, but now, obviously, many years in my rearview mirror, I can still say I was an economics major. So you're sitting in the TV lounge. You're at Princeton, right? In those days, they had TV lounges. Now, probably nobody ever talks to anybody. They all stay in their room and looking at their phones. But you're old enough uh, to remember the TV lounge. Of all your Princeton colleagues, was there someone who wrote a thesis that was just the coolest thing to you all these years later? Well, there, 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 there are so many, uh, so, so many to, to, to name. Um, <laughs> and you know, obviously, you know, I think the, the, thing, the thing about the senior thesis that's such a special entity is that you know, it really is the thing that you spend your entire year doing uh there which is which is really different from a lot of other universities it's, it's really an independent uh study where where it's almost like a mini phd you have to come up with uh you know basically a, a really unique question and and then you know under the guidance of one of these brilliant thesis advisors uh you you, you basically try to, to to try to tackle it um and you know, gosh there's 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 sort of too many to name but but you know <laughs> you know people people in in in, in the various sciences have done extraordinary uh, work, you know, in, in, in areas like molecular biology and, and, and physics and, and too, too, too many to name. Certainly people who did much more impressive things than try to figure out uh, how, how and why have <laughs> proliferated in America. I remember being uh, on the campus because I was uh, visiting Princeton uh, for the crew team, actually, when I was in high school. And I was one of three recruits that they had stay there this one weekend that I'll never forget. And that's when I learned about if you come to Princeton, you're going to have to do a senior thesis. And the kid giving me the tour of the campus said, 
his friend just got thrown out of the school because his senior thesis was in truly creating from the literature at that time, this is in the 70s, how to make an atom bomb. And if you read his thesis, you knew how to make one. They figured, oh, my God, you can't do that. Well, now he, clearly it's out there. But I, I took that now. I ended up going to Columbia. But I did a senior thesis my, at Columbia because of how cool that was of an idea that I took away from just spending a few days on the campus of uh, Princeton. And uh, I just think it's unique and it's special. Columbia has its core curriculum. But what makes Princeton amazing is the fact that the undergrad has to do, as you say, a Ph.D. thesis before they graduate. It's really something to be proud of. All right, Neil, I can't wait to talk to you about the advances in hernia surgery. And you're at the forefront using the robot. So can you hang on a second? We'll take a break. We'll pay some bills. When we come back, I want to really get into the advances and you at the forefront of a lot of these advances. Is that okay? Absolutely. All right. We're talking to the great Dr. Neil Joshi from Cedar sinai a general surgeon who's the best in the business with hernia surgery. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. Hey, it's Sedano. You know there's no better way to start your Saturday than when my guy, Dr. Clapper, and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m., Saturday mornings. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Roberto Clapperio, a fish tacologist. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. I know the ins and outs of a fish taco. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. God only knows. God only knows what's in Brian Wilson's head about how to build a song and the different layers that he uses, the background vocals, the lead vocals, the different instruments he's using, and the sense that different studios have a different oven to cook the pizza in, basically. Brian Wilson, he understood the power of layering. I'm joined now by the great Dr. Neil Joshi, who's an expert in layering in the body. So, Neil, teach us a little bit about the abdominal wall and the hernia and how you like to look inside from inside out rather than outside in. Take us through the big advances in how to do general surgery on the abdomen. So I think in particular as it relates to, to groin hernias, um, I think it's, it's good to sort of rehash the, the history briefly of how these operations have been done. So prior to, say, a few decades ago, uh, when surgeons would fix uh, inguinal hernias, uh, they really would do what you know what are called tissue repairs, where they would use uh, sutures to basically reapproximate uh, the layers uh, of of the groin, as you had sort of nicely alluded to earlier. Uh, and and those types of repairs, uh, you know, depending on who you did it for, uh, were were effective, but but they also had a pretty high risk of of recurrence because depending on the size of the hernia or uh, the relative weakness of the tissues, uh, there was just too much tension on tissues that were too weak to just hold sutures. And so uh, mesh repairs really were, were popul popularized a few decades ago, uh, and they were done, you know, at that time primarily through open uh, approach where uh, essentially uh, mesh, uh, which is just a, a plastic reinforcing sheet, is used to, to basically take the tension uh, off the repair. It's essentially a patch-type uh, repair. And, and that type of open mesh repair uh, really for, for, for a long time 
uh, has been kind of the the standard of care for how these operations are done uh, in, in the United States. Now, in, in the last 20 years or so, uh, there was a lot more interest in doing laparoscopic surgery, which basically involves putting uh, a camera inside the abdomen and, as you say, inflating the abdomen and approaching these hernia defects from, from the inside rather than from the outside. And, and there's a lot of really compelling reasons why that's a good thing. Uh, you know, the mechanics of doing a hernia repair from the inside or the posterior approach are, are, are in many cases superior because you're, you're basically putting the patch in a plane where when a person strains or their intestines get distended, it, it, it reinforces the repair by pushing uh, the patch against the abdominal wall, kind of like mm. patching a tire from the inside versus the outside. Mm. Now, the challenge with doing a, a traditional uh, a laparoscopic re- repair where you're using straight chopsticks, essentially, is that the ergonomics are not very favorable. You're operating down in the pelvis in, in a very tight space where, in some cases, the anatomy can be challenging and difficult. And you don't have the dexterity uh, and or three-dimensional visualization because, uh, you're again, you're using straight sticks and looking at a two-dimensional TV screen. And your hands and are too really, big to work in such a small space. That's exactly right. And so you're using these instruments uh, when you do straight laparoscopy that have uh, you know, basically scissor grips, and, and you're trying to sort of use your hands to rotate instruments and dissect in, in areas that are tough to reach. Mm. And, and as a result, you know, even though laparoscopic techniques for inguinal hernias have been uh, present for a long time, uh, the adoption of those, of those techniques just really wasn't widespread. And, and it's really striking when you compare it to other areas of surgery, like taking out a person's gallbladder or doing, uh, you know, an appendectomy. You know, those types of procedures, you know, where you know where, where laparoscopy uh, was adopted, really became the standard of care. Whereas in hernia, it was it was slow to, to be adopted because of those challenges. And and that's really what what I think leads now to to, to the robotic surgery era, which you know in the last uh, decade or so has really uh, gained a strong foothold and. And really, in my in my opinion, in the next five years or so, is going to continue to, to flourish. What what surgical robots allow for is it basically to have um, much more precise dissection down uh, in in the pelvis and, and in these narrow areas, because the the robot allows for for the tips of the instruments to be wristed, and and basically when when a surgeon uh, uh, is manipulating those instruments down in the pelvis, he or she has the ability to rotate the tips. 360 degrees and, 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 and do things that, that honestly, that I, I would have a hard time doing with, with straight sticks or even with, with, with my hands, even if I had my hands down there. Uh, additionally, the, the, the visualization down in the pelvis is superior with, with robotic surgery because we're looking into a console that gives us depth perception. It's a three-dimensional view. Uh, and, and, and as a result, when you're dissecting around these really critical structures like the gonadal blood vessels, and the vast deference and, and nerves and things that you have to protect at all costs, your ability to sort of have depth, depth perception and instruments that can really, you know, rotate and pivot uh, in, in any way that you need them to allows you to, to just really, really be precise in, in, in how you do these operations. And, and as a result, uh, you know, more and more surgeons around, uh, around the country and around the world are starting to do these laparoscopic repairs of, of groin hernias robotically. And, and the outcomes are, 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 are pretty magnificent. I, I can tell you early in practice, I did a, a lot of uh, open inguinal hernia repairs. And even though those, those operations work very well and are very effective, uh, a meaningful percentage of the patients who have them done 
uh, have a have a have pretty tough time for a few days to to up to a few weeks after surgery because the operations really hurt when you're putting sutures into the pubic bone and putting sutures into the inguinal ligament. And those patients then get up and, and move around. And, and we use our, our lower abdominal muscles for so many activities, you know, not just athletic activities, but just twisting and getting out of bed or using the bathroom and things mm-hmm. like that. And if I compare the, the outcomes when I was doing a lot of opening little hernia repairs to how my patients do now when I'm doing primarily robotic laparoscopic repairs, it's really night and day. Uh, when I call most of my patients the next morning after surgery, the vast majority of them, like 90% or more, are just taking Tylenol the day after surgery. And that's true even if we're doing bilateral or double uh, inguinal hernias. So, Neil, I, when I first assisted my spine colleagues under the microscope, it was amazing to recognize that my brain, which is used to using instruments in surgery, to separate muscles and tendons and work on orthopedic joints like I work on. But now I was under the microscope where I also had to move my fingers' muscles to hold instruments and move them microscopically. It was, it was such a surreal moment for me to watch my fingers move. Forget about a snail's pace, but to be able to move so carefully and so, how could my neurons and my own body move so softly microscopically? It was an amazing thing to behold under the microscope, my own hand moving that way. That later, when I was now not under the microscope, I could go back to using my hands as I use grossly more in a bigger way. What's it like for you it, with the robot where the robotic wrist and hand can spin 360 degrees? Your wrist and hand can't spin 360 degrees. What's, I could understand the transition of you going from typical outside-in surgery to now using the 360 robot hand but then what must be like to go back and be the general surgeon who doesn't have the robot? What's it like to live in both of those worlds? That, that's, it's really interesting that you ask because I've actually had that thought. You know, when I, when I do an open operation anymore or even a straight laparoscopic operation, I find myself kind of getting frustrated because <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not as capable uh, as I was. You know, you, you brought up the baseball players using the, the Louisville slugger. Uh, you know, it's, it's like it's like you have a, a you know an aluminum bat, and so, suddenly someone hands you a Louisville Slugger again, and you expect to to be able to hit the ball as, as far. Um, but but no, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I think it really does. Uh, you know, it really is striking the advantages that that it affords. And and I think you know, I think an important point to emphasize is that you know there there are different levels of ability among surgeons. There are, you know just as, as among athletes, there are people. Mm-hmm that are very, very naturally gifted. And, and I think whenever there's new technology, sometimes there's a sense among the most talented surgeons to say, well, I don't, I don't need that advantage. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, really, I'm really so good that I can do this with straight sticks or I can do this uh, you know, without the benefit of, 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 of robotic assistance. But I think, I think the reality is that, that every high-level athlete would want the best equipment, the best shoes, the best tennis racket, the best golf clubs, because even the people who are the greatest with ordinary equipment are going to be that much greater 
when they have every advantage of, of, of things like a surgical robot or, or, or high-level athletic equipment. And I think that's what we're starting to see now. You know, I think with, with robotic surgery in particular, uh, we're, we're seeing such great adoption now across all different specialties, not just my own, which is general surgery, but, uh, you know, urologists have been using it for prostatectomies for many years. Cardiac surgeons are now using it uh, to do really elegant, uh, minimally invasive mitral valve repairs and things. And, and I, think, I think the future is, is extraordinarily bright because, you know, we as surgeons now have this game improvement, performance-enhancing substance in our hands that's going to make us, uh, make us that much better than, than we've been uh, historically. So really, really an exciting time uh, in, in surgery. I have about a minute left, and before I let you go, I really want to know the, the renaissance nature of your life. For me, as a sculptor in marble, as a surfer, who's also a surgeon, I see... The surfing, adding to my world and abilities as a surgeon. Same thing for sculpting in marble. For you, Neil Joshi, what does golf give you that, and the, and the teachings of golf allow you to be a better surgeon? What do you find at golf? Other than the mental aspects of it, is there, are there other aspects to your passion for golf at the level that you play that you can bring to the operating room? Well, I think that the parallels are that it's a flow state, right? You know, when, when I'm, when I'm out there on the golf course uh, playing with, with my friends, um, it's really, it's really uh, just a pure flow state where I'm just really, really enjoying uh, doing something that's physically challenging, but also, uh, you know, something that I've you know done a lot since childhood and, and on my better days can, can do reasonably well. I, obviously, on my worst days, not so well. But uh, I, I think it's just it's just a flow state where time just seems to, to go really fast. And, and I think what about instrument wise, Neil? What about instrument wise? Because the angle of the pitching wedge versus the sand wedge versus the three iron versus the putter doesn't golf teach you? that there is a perfect tool for the job at hand. Uh, the difference, the nine iron versus the pitching, or the, the yardage. Nope, my nine iron would be better. My pitching would. Same thing in surgery, right? I think I would rather use a tonsil clamp versus a Kelly clamp versus a, Do you find that you look at using your different clubs and the different instruments you use as a surgeon comparable? Yeah, I, I think absolutely, and, and I, I, I think along those lines, though, I think you know, as as you sort of improve at things, uh, you know, you, what you find is that uh, you know you, you enjoy the the, the the challenge of being able to be efficient and not mm. change instruments many times if you can mm. kind of you know do a good enough job with what you're holding. I, I'm, I'm reminded I, I saw a video clip of John Rahm, the great mm. uh, uh, Spanish golfer who played at Arizona State, hitting a flop shot with a four iron. Wow. And, and, and it was just extraordinary to see him take this low lofted club and just slide it right into the ball and sort of pop it uh, up mm. in the air. And, and, and I think, uh, but, but absolutely. I mean, the shots that I really enjoy playing on, on the golf course are the short game shots, the little wedges and, mm. and, and bunker shots and, and flop shots. And I think, you know, uh, for better or worse, surgery is a lot, of, at least general surgery as I do it, is, is a lot of short game. It's mm -hmm. a lot of those kind of deft little uh, kind of elegant touches uh and and you know i i think uh there there definitely are parallels 
and, and, and it's, it's probably not surprising why I enjoy doing yep. uh, both of those things so much. I agree. What a treat. What a pleasure, particularly for the Weekend Warrior Nation, to hear you, to know that you're out there if they need it. And for me, working at Cedars all these years, to know that you can be there if I need you and we have patients in common, again, Cedars is just a building. It's the people that inhabit that building that make it so special. I want to thank you so much for making the time to be with us this morning. You're really special, Neil, and God bless you for all that you do. Oh, thank you, Robbie. It's such a pleasure, and, and I feel like you know this could have been a Wednesday morning if the scrubs think of the surgeon's lounge. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, really? What a treat. All right, thanks so much. Have a great Saturday. All right, Warriors, what a treat to be able to listen and to appreciate what goes into the thinking of a surgeon and what makes up a hernia, and to have someone like Dr. Joshi available, that's awesome. Coming up next, i got to tell you where the best lasagna is in Los Angeles. Got to do some clapper vision with the Weekend Warriors. Coming up next, we'll get into it. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warriors show. The number is 877-710-ESPN. What's going on? It's Max. You know there's no better way to start your Saturday morning than with my friend Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior show. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. You're not going to leave me alone, are you? Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior show with Dr. Clapper. The Grand Poobah, the Big Kahuna. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. What a treat. General surgery. It wasn't enough for me because... Thank God there are people like Neil Joshi. Thank God there are other people who choose to go into other fields of medicine. For me, I was on the lookout for carpentry. Saws and drills and hammers and screws. That's what I was looking for. And boy, did I find it in orthopedic surgery. Mm-mm-mm. That Milwaukee Sawzall that came into my father's life when I was a boy and how he smiled and ran around the house like Christmas. He couldn't believe he had a tool that avoided so much chiseling and hammering. Zip, zip, you can cut a wood stud and put the outlet box in. That's when I realized tools are the greatest thing. Did someone really invent the Milwaukee Sawzall? I remember being eight years old going... That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to invent a Milwaukee Sawzall. Who could imagine all these years later? I did. Except my tool is called the Ultra Drive. Look it up. Millions of cases all over the world using the tool I invented. It's awesome. Today's topic has been about the power of layering in the world of music and in the case of surgery, fixing a hernia. There's a whole world of sports that uses layering and its power. Where is it? It's in making a baseball. Baseballs are manufactured precisely to league standards, and those standards date back to 1872. Each ball is exactly the same circumference and weight, so the game is always a fair contest. Crowds will go wild for these professional baseballs, and at the heart of each one is something called the pill. The pill. What's the pill? 
Inside the baseball is cork, which comes from the bark of a tree. Then they put rubber around the cork. Listen to the process of building with layers a baseball. The pill is smaller than a golf ball. It's about four and a quarter inches in circumference. Inside the pill's rubber casing is a sphere of cork. They pour latex adhesive over hundreds of pills loaded into a drum. Rollers spin the drum to evenly coat the pills with the adhesive. This adhesive never dries out completely, and the pills remain sticky to the touch. Wow. Next, they loop four-ply wool around the pill. Whoa! This machine spins the pill to wind the yarn around it. This winding substantially fattens the pill. It's the first time a camera has ever been allowed to record this proprietary machine, so we can't show you all of it. They wind a second layer of wool around the pills. This yarn is three-ply, and it thickens the ball a little more. So they now wrap wool, which comes from a sheepskin, around the pill, which is made of a bark of a tree, which is cork. I love this. For a third winding, they use another three-ply yarn, but it's a bit lighter. The various layers of yarn are what give the baseball resilience, so it springs back into shape despite being hit repeatedly. For the final winding, they use a much thinner polywool blend because its surface is smoother. This wound pill is called the center. They weigh it and measure its circumference, which should be about 9 inches. So now they're going to need to get Leather, which is the hide of a cow. We got wood, the cork. We got wool from a sheep. And now we've got leather from a cow. Using this hydraulic press, they punch out figure eight shapes from leather, complete with holes around the periphery, allowing them to be stitched into baseball covers. But first, they stamp the date and lot number onto them. Then they wrap them in wet towels. The moisture will make the leather pliable enough to sew. They roll the water-based adhesive onto one side of the cutouts, which sticks to the moist leather. They press two cutouts to the center sticky surface. It's an exact fit. They clamp the leather-clad ball in a vise, and it's time to sew. Sewing. Working with two needles, the sewer pulls thread through the ball center and up through the holes in the leather pieces to cross-stitch them together. He rubs wax on the thread to stiffen it, because if it slackens, it's more likely to tangle. When it comes to cross-stitching, these workers are in a league of their own. They are. They make quick work of the 108 stitches in each ball. There are 350 sewers in this factory, and they produce eight to 10,000 balls per day. That's a lot of home runs. The final stitch goes through the center of the baseball and out the other side. The sewer then pulls stitches into a V configuration to give the ball a consistent look and feel. The balls now roll into a press that smooths down the seams, 
Smoother balls are harder to grip, and they make pitching a bit tougher for the pros. Finally, a three-headed stamper gives it the trademark, league logo, and the commissioner's signature. Now listen to this. With drying cycles, it takes a week to make a professional baseball. It will be whacked and slammed out of the playing field. But that's life in the big leagues. They make a million or use a million baseballs a year in Major League Baseball. But you need the consistency. That's what the wool compression does. And to keep it the same way they did it in 1872. The power of layers in sports, in art, music, and in surgery and how our bodies are made. It's awesome. Let's talk about next week. Next week I have a fascinating subject because it's how you can tell if you have cancer or not of your prostate. Yeah, you can do PSAs. You can do all kinds of tests. But in my opinion, the best test is can you feel as a doctor that the prostate is not soft and mushy and bouncy? It's like picking a nectarine. If it's not ripe, it's hard. If it's too soft, it's rotten already. Light touch and being able to feel can save your life. If the right doctor knows what they're feeling, they can tell you you got trouble or you don't have to worry. And we're going to have a urologist as a guest next week. But it made me already think the power in light touch. Blind people read Braille. Do you know how Braille works? It's fascinating that the entire Braille has to be the size of the tip of your finger. And these tiny little bumps mean something. Wait till you hear Ray Charles talk about being blind and Braille. What about in sports? Well, the difference between a Sandy Koufax and a Bob Gibson is how that light touch on the threads of that baseball we just learned about can make a slider versus sinker. Light touch in life, in art, in sports, and in surgery. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Oh, and by the way, today's topic of layering and the power of layering in food is all about one thing, lasagna. Where in L.A.? is my favorite, lasagna. And again, don't forget to get some extra marinara sauce to pour on top of it. The secret is when they make the meat with meatballs, not just ground beef. And my favorite lasagna in L.A. is Fabricini's at the top of Beverly Glen. You got to go up a hill, park your car. It's been there for decades. My favorite for lasagna. So until next week, I leave you with Volari. And until next week, I'll see you on the radio.